Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. So happy you are here. My goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga, massage, body work, and beyond. Follow us at Native Yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com. All right, let's begin. Welcome to Native Yoga Podcast today, Celeste Pereira. She is a physiotherapist. Uh, she practices and teaches functional neurology. She's a yoga teacher. She's an author. She has her own podcast. She offers advanced anatomy teacher training. Find her on her website, CelestePereira.com, spelled C-E-L-E-S-T-P-E-R-E-I-R-A. And also find her on Instagram, the handle at Celeste Pereira Physio. Do follow her. She is incredible. I had so much fun listening. She gave so much good information. I, I, I can 99.99% guarantee you're going to love this one. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to become a contributor, there's a button or a link right down there you can click. I really appreciate it. And also, please go check out Celeste and um, just send her some love, send her some comments, let her know you know, what you think, what you feel. She's just really fascinating. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm so excited to have Celeste Pereira here today. And Celeste, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I was just telling you off camera <laughs> that it's been a really intense week. And so um, I'm very excited about the fact that it's Friday and that I'm going to get to rest this weekend. Um, but outside of that, thank you so much for inviting me on your amazing podcast. Well, thank you. I love the content that you produce. It's so informative and I'm excited to speak uh, with you. Uh, you're a physiotherapist. Is that correct? Yeah, I am. I have my own online um, clinic and I do see some people in person, but mostly around the world, I have different clients that dial in on Zoom and then we do um, different sessions and we evaluate their nervous system um, online and we get some pretty intensely good results, even though it's not in person. That's cool. And you're also a yoga teacher. I am. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have my own app and I teach twice a week in London Um and yeah, I just absolutely love teaching yoga. I uh, taught for many years and then the pandemic hit and we had to all pivot online. Yeah. And now that we're back in person again, wow, what a gift, hey? What a gift to be back with the real people in the flesh. Yeah, yeah. And were you already up to speed with having an app prior to the pandemic or is this something that you put all together because of? Uh, it was actually something I put together just as it finished. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, gosh, what a what an experience that has been. It's it's um it's a lot of work to run an app, but what what's actually been so nice about it is that there are different people around the world that I get to connect with who ordinarily I wouldn't have had the chance to. So yeah, it's been really good for that reason. That is so cool. I know it's something that I think it looks amazing whenever I see somebody put one together and I think I want to do it. And then, then I re then I'm taught about how much work it would take and I go, Oh my <laughs> goodness. So how do you manage all that? What, what is your trick, your strategy for doing the marketing that is required as a self employed professional? I think one of the biggest, I mean, I think one of the biggest things I'd like to share with your audience is 
there is a myth in the world of being self-employed that you want to have multiple streams of income. And so what a lot of us do is, sorry, this is a little bit off piste from your question, but no, just bear with please, me. Please, please. Uh, a lot of us do is we, we hear this advice. And so I'm speaking for myself now, but I wrote a book. I teach classes. I ran retreats and events and teacher trainings. And I started an app. And I then started really digging a bit deeper into people that really make it like really make their business viable and they often only have one big thing that they're mm. working on mm. maybe a little side thing but very very often what and what i'm finding now is that there isn't enough time to market everything effectively and to really nail it and so one of the big things that this year has been about is actually tying up loose ends and actually trying to say no to more projects and then pivot so that we're, we're taking just one main project and letting that be the main thing that you work on. Amazing. Because it's a very good question. How do you have time to market everything and to run it well? And the real answer is, if I'm very honest, I'm so stretched to an absolute brink and it shouldn't be like that for us. We should have, we should be working extremely hard and we should be able to pause and step away from it and think, okay, now time to get inspiration. Yes. So that when I go back to the thing, there is, you know, something left in the tank. And, and I think that that has been the biggest learning for me is this, this myth of having multiple streams of income is really not sustainable unless you have a massive team, which most of us, we don't have access to that. Yeah. Great, great advice. I appreciate that. Do you find that you've been able to employ that same theory and technique to other parts of, say, like your exercise routines or your exercise approach? <laughs> That's so funny. And I actually, now that you're asking that question, I'm realizing <laughs> it's a theme in my life <laughs> to dip my big toe into the proverbial ocean and hope that some of its wisdom will come into me. Because I would say I'm, I'm, I'm similar in the approach to my exercise. Like yeah. I, I'll compare myself. Sorry, that was my wake up alarm from my afternoon nap. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Six minutes late. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, I love climbing and uh, I'll use the example of one, a good friend of mine who I climb with. She's just obsessed with climbing. And so that's all she does. And she's really good at climbing. Mm. But I would get so bored if all I did was climb. Yeah. And I absolutely love going to calisthenics. Um, I quite like just the fact that there's other people in the room and I can watch them struggling with pull-ups and then some other people getting it. Um, I love lifting weights. Um, I don't have a community that I do that with, but I have a gym in my building. So I go and I lift weights. Um, I'm obsessed with kite surfing. Obsessed. Oh, cool. I kite surf too. Obsessed. Yeah. Yeah, do you? Yeah. Oh my God, we have to connect over that. I, I, yeah. And, and so... Any chance I get, I'm in the water, nice. but I don't just do one thing. I also love dancing. I love yoga. Uh, so I wish I could say there was just the one path for me with that, but really I yeah. dip my big toe yeah. in again, as I yeah. said. Yeah. That's a, it's a tough one to just like, just I'm only gonna do one thing. <laughs> for me, for sure. I think yeah. they're like, like I mentioned my friend who's really into rock climbing. She's mm. so determined with that. Like that's her one thing. And I was trying to imagine myself giving up something to get good at one thing. And I, and I just genuinely couldn't. In relation to coaching your clients then, and you find someone that comes to you with an injury and perhaps you, I'm guessing you might investigate like, what are your daily activities? What are you doing? Are you generally coaching people to try to diversify 
to be able to heal or what is your, do you have a standard approach that you use in relation to that? It's a difficult one because it really depends on the person. And I would say that if I had someone who is doing the same thing every single day, and when I say, for example, I don't know, like a set sequence, like Ashtanga, all they do is that every single day, they don't do anything else. I do tend to encourage them to diversify. Yeah, yeah. But I'll give you a quick example. I just Please. had my, my physio session that just ended before you. Um, you know, she's a dancer. And she does a variety of different movements. I mean, so complex, her movement history. And she does a lot of different therapeutic movements uh, to complement that. And yet she's really struggling with pain in her body. And with a little bit of evaluation of her history and also watching her move, I realized that she has a vestibular deficit, which means her middle ear is not operating quite as it should. And so we started doing a few very basic um, tests of it. And it was very apparent that her, 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 her system is just not working well. Mm. So no matter how much she rehabs or diversifies her training schedule, she's not going to get to the root cause of her problem. Wow. And what that's going to mean is it's almost, I use the, the metaphor of fighting a forest fire with a pistol gun. Yeah. You're just always, you're going to get a few flames that are going to die and then they're just going to come right back up at you. And so that's why sometimes zooming out and looking more holistically at the body Mm. is far more effective. And I think physiotherapists and physical therapists, as they are called in America, um, have also been indoctrinated into this allopathic model of how the body works. When we're looking at the medical world, they put their blinkers on. And if someone says, my elbow hurts, they analyze the arm. Mm. Yeah. Or the neck. Yeah. Maybe that'll go as far as the neck. But yeah. the problem could be as low as the toe or as high as visual issues. Mm. And these seemingly unrelated problems actually do throw, do show up as pain in the body. Interesting. Good answer. Um, I, I, I went through your Instagram page, which is amazing. Everyone listening, please go follow Celeste at Celeste Pereira Physio. Um, and I noticed that you said it's a myth that the feet should always be parallel. Can you talk a little bit about what, what, it, what, what you're, what you mean by that? <laughs> um, it was just something that I noticed a lot in the yoga community where people were really encouraged to have their feet in parallel, uh, whether that's in a downward facing dog or at the top of the mat in Tadasana. And whilst I do appreciate finding some kind of, uh, neutral alignment can be useful for a lot of stuff. I don't want people to think that that's the finish line. Mm. Like, let's call it a starting point, but it's so important for us to get good at lunging like a warrior or, or even in the gym with our weights. Just get your feet out of parallel and sometimes do things with internal rotation and sometimes do things with external rotation mm. because our brain needs to map all of the possibilities and it can only do that through experience. So if we don't use it, we lose it. And what I see a lot in my clinic is that people have just, like you mentioned earlier, people are doing the same thing the same way over and over. And we're we're missing huge maps in our brain. And people will often come to me with problems and it's either trauma related or disuse atrophy. Mm. And what those words mean is just that statement, don't use it, you lose it. So they're actually getting pain in their body or having issues with um, focus, clarity, 
And it's mainly just because their brain is starting to shrink in size and it shrinks more rapidly. The older we get, we actually have to increase demand on our brain rapidly as we age and demand on our physical bodies and our cognitive abilities to help keep our neural tissue intact. Mm. Great point. That made me think about, I remember at one time someone had said in relation to say Prasarita Padottanasana or wide foot forward folding stretch that, uh, okay, bring your feet parallel. If you want a deeper stretch, do an internal rotation. But if you're experiencing sciatic pain, turn your toes into an external rotation or out. Do you think there's any validity to that? Or is that a bit of a myth as well? No, I, what, what's happening when you go into internal rotation is you are putting those nerves on a bigger stretch. Mm. But to say that someone with sciatica will you know, should just turn their feet out. I think people with sciatica, depending on its severity, could still be quite compromised in a forward fold. Mm. Um, So again, it would really depend. And also, I don't know if it's really appropriate if a yoga teacher would say a blanket statement like that in a yoga class, particularly Mm. because really, if someone has sciatica, yoga, yoga can be quite aggravating simply because of all the forward folds. So did they say that for downward dog? Did they say that for every forward fold through the Suri Namaskar? It's actually less neural tension because the legs are abducted. They're spread apart. Mm. When you're going into a forward fold, the legs are adducted and that's even more aggravating for sciatica. Uh. So I would hope that if they are helping to rehab, that's great, but are you actually applying those same principles intelligently through the poses that are actually even more aggressive for those nerves? Nice. Good point. That's cool. Can you, how, I noticed that you have a terminology for <laughs> ways that you uh, teach called um, functional neurology. Can you give a little bit of insight <laughs> into like, what does that big word mean? Yeah, functional neurology. Well, of course, we have a brain. And what many people don't realize, like, let's use the example of having stronger legs to do your lunges better. Like, that's a simple example. A lot of people think that to get the quads stronger, we have to load the quads. We have to keep doing more and more quad exercises. And they are absolutely correct. But a large percentage of the strength that's available to your body, in fact, even just the ability to move your leg, it all comes from the brain. Every single thing that you do, think, say, every process in your body, it's all governed from the central nervous system, everything. And people forget this, you know, they, they really look at the body from the neck down. So when they want to get better at pose, they mm. practice the pose or mm. poses that look similar to the pose. But actually, there's so much we can do in terms of the brain. And I'll use a forward fold as an example. If we want to get better at touching our toes, This is called flexion in the body, right? It's a flexed spine and we've got flexion of the hips. To get better at that, we can actually, instead of just practicing forward folds, go to a brain region that sets your reflexive flexor tone. And two come to mind. The first one is in the brainstem, one of the oldest parts and lowest parts of your brain called the midbrain. And another part of the brainstem, which is called the medulla. So you've got these two areas. Both of these have the job of reflexively getting your flexor tone to light up. And I can actually improve someone's forward folds by just lighting up those two parts of the brain. Mm. There's an old statement in neurology called neurons that wire together, fire together. So in the midbrain, for example, you've got 
uh, little receptors that sense if you need to take a breath. And if you don't, haven't breathed in a while, they'll start to contract your breathing muscles. And they're also right next to the neurons that give you this ability to flex your body, like touch your toes. So if I get someone to hold their breath, I can actually light up the midbrain. And then when I recheck their forward fold, they can, they can often go deeper. Mm. Another process that lives in the midbrain helps us to bring our eyes together. You and I are staring at a screen right now, looking at each other. So our eyes are in what we call convergence. They're together. If we had to look out the window and look far away, our eyes would go into divergence. Now, one of the ways I could get someone to be better at their forward folds is I can actually get them to practice convergence by bringing their thumb to the tip of their nose repeatedly. And then I get them to recheck their forward fold. And again, really frequently, I'm finding people can then do their forward fold so much better. Interesting. So whilst we do want to do reps and repetitions, because this helps to increase the brain's mapping and improve the muscles and the joints, of course, all of that's important. We can also shorten the time it takes to achieve things in the body by going to the neural tissue first. That's so cool. I did see a post that you did that said, this is not real yoga, which I think, you know, is intriguing. You're like, well, what you gonna, what she's going to do? That's not real. But you kind of demonstrated maybe going, like you said, into a warrior pose and then doing that same technique that you just talked about, bringing the thumb close to your eyes and bringing it away and then coordinating that in different positions. I thought that was so interesting. I haven't seen that yet before. Well, what's interesting is through the history of yoga, they did actually have different eye movements, but it has kind of been lost a little bit in translation. Mm -hmm. People aren't utilizing some of those um, tools anymore. And I think it also just depends on, like history is always written by whoever is popular at the time. And I think that when Patabi Joyce and Iyengar kind of reached mainstream um, within the yoga world, a lot of the other kind of Tibetan practices that utilized eye movements sort of fell to the wayside. You know, thankfully, we still have a really rich pranayama um, that has infiltrated the practice. For some styles, though, that hasn't really been integrated at its highest level. I'm guilty of that as well. I'm definitely not pointing any fingers at anyone yeah, for yeah. this evolution. It really yeah. is the yoga teachers doing their best to serve their community in the way they know how. But yeah, I mean, I think that this is the thing about yoga, in my humble opinion, is that it's a living art and that it's adapting. And I think it's important that we take time to look at all the different things that kind of formulate yoga and understand that potentially there's a few things that need to change as well as we move forward and we tweak the practice really to help people to make, I should say this instead, to make yoga sustainable in their bodies. Mm, very cool. Can you explain a little bit what you meant by the process of holding the breath? That How does holding the breath fire the lower brainstem like you made mention of? Yeah, the upper brainstem, the midbrain. Upper brain, sorry, midbrain. Um, it's called the midbrain, but it's actually the top portion of the brainstem. So all very confusing. But So the brainstem um, has the ability to sense if you have elevated levels of carbon dioxide in your blood. And I want to use the example of a coffee drinker. So imagine someone's drinking coffee. Um, if the more coffee you drink, the more immune to coffee you become. Like you've got these people who are like, I can drink coffee at 11 at night and I go straight back to sleep, no problem. Yeah. And the reason they were able to do that is they have formed more receptors on their brain so that they have a lot of availability to get that 
coffee molecule to bind. And if someone like me who never drinks coffee drinks a coffee, even if it's 5 a.m. in the morning, I will be running like a headless chicken until late at night because I have so few receptors. They bind so quick, they're all full, and I've got all this leftover caffeine, which is rushing through my bloodstream, which makes me feel really jacked up. So for me, I need to be really mindful of my coffee intake. Well, in your brainstem, you've got these receptors which bind with carbon dioxide. And what we find when we look at the general population, because of the introduction of knives and forks and soft food, our palate has shrunk dramatically from our ancestors. In addition to that, our breathing um, space, uh, for lack of a better term, um, has also shrunk. So imagine all the airways, I should call them, all the airways of your nostrils and down into your lungs. These airways have also become smaller. So what's happening is we're utilizing mouth breathing unconsciously, particularly when we sleep. And actually, even as far as when we're doing exercise. And what this is doing is it's blowing all of our carbon dioxide off. We're blowing a lot of it out of our bodies. So what, what happens is when we hold our breath, we don't have a lot of those carbon dioxide receptors on the brainstem. So we hold our breath and all of the carbon dioxide that is in the blood quickly binds to those receptors. And then you've got a lot left over in your blood and your brain goes, it's too much carbon dioxide. I can't cope. <sighs> so then you start to pant and you'll do a big breath to sigh and let it all out. Um, and what's actually interesting is we can train our brain to develop more receptors for carbon dioxide by holding our breath. And this is really important because we actually need to have a balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide for oxygen to be able to get into our tissues. So it's actually a useful thing to be able to learn how to hold your breath because when you do, you increase your amount of carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide doesn't just let your oxygen float around in your blood. It's like opening the door of the taxi. And it says, please enter the tissues. And then mm. oxygen is able to get into your mm. brain and your muscles mm. and your, your tissues, mm. like your organs. When I measure the oxygen saturation of someone who has a breathing pathology like COPD, we see that they have really great oxygen in their blood, but they have blue lips mm. because they're not able to get the oxygen into their tissues. And when I ask them, can you hold your breath? They can do it for a few seconds and they're, <sighs> they start to pant. They would pant walking to the toilet, mm. even if it's just a few steps yeah. away. Yeah. And it's because of their CO2 tolerance is very low. Interesting. You know, I, I'm, I'm guessing you had to have read Breath by James Nestor. Of course. That, what a legend. I interviewed him legend. on my podcast. Did you really? No <laughs> way. Did. That's awesome. He was the first, he was the, the first <sighs> interviewee, actually. I was like, like you will come on my podcast. Wow. And the first one. Like, legend. Well, yeah. that's so cool. I, I did write him to try to get him to be a guest and he was kind enough to respond, which I thought was so cool, but he was, oh. he was extremely busy. But that's amazing that you got him on. 
Wasn't that fascinating to hear the way he researched going down under the tunnels in France and looking at skulls from like back prior to what you're talking about with like the mushy food that we eat before when we were actually chomping on carrots and celery and stuff. And so he did a really good job. of that. So interesting. Did you ever read his other one deep where he he chronicles? You know what? I've heard of it, but I must. It's so good. It's on my list. It's just as entertaining. Yeah. That's so cool. That's fascinating. So then when you're doing an assessment of somebody and you're wanting to help them improve their, say, um, forward flexion ability, like you're saying, hold your breath. What are you, are you just waiting for them to hold as long as they can? Are you saying, let's try to hold it for 30 seconds? What's your protocol in relation to that? My protocol would be to do something called air hunger. I wanted to keep, because of what I'm explaining to you guys and those of you who are still with me, thank you. It's very complicated, (laughs) some of the things I'm saying. And so when I first spoke about holding your breath, I tried to keep it as simple as possible. So I just said, hold your breath. But since you've asked, um, actually the way I would do it is something with a tool, which I believe everyone should do every single day. It's called air hunger. And what air hunger is, is that you're doing movement whilst holding your breath after you've breathed out. So you'll breathe out all the air and you'll hold your breath and then you'll go walking or you'll do squats or push-ups, whatever, whatever floats your boat. And what we want to do is we want to get people to do that body weight exercise just until they feel that's enough and they only take one breath to recover. And that's a really important distinction because what we don't want to do is push them so far that they then pant (laughs) and release all their CO2. We Mm. want them to retain the Mm. CO2. So ideally they would hold their breath until it's uncomfortable and then they go (sighs) just the one breath. Mm. And then they would potentially have a period where they take a bit of time to just relax and then they would go again. They would do. A, they could do as many rounds as they feel comfortable doing. Um, and we just do see a really great um, upregulation of their flexor tone. That goes for forward folds, push up, shoulder flexion. So if they're trying to get into handstand or downward dog, oh my gosh, this works incredibly well. Interesting. So let me try to imagine. I'm going to pick the squats. I take a big breath in. I exhale, I hold my breath with nowhere in my body, do as many squats as I can, but not too crazy (laughs) so that when I have to breathe, I take a big breath in, inhale, I exhale, and then right away. And then you need to be calm. And just be calm. So don't go right back to the squats right away and then like, you know, further Uh, ramp up. No, no, no. Have a bit of recovery time. (laughs) Have a little recovery time, even if it's a few seconds. That's interesting. Some people need longer. I work with people that have had severe brain traumas. Um... And they're rehabbing from that. And because in the time that they've been trying to rehab, they've literally just been laying down. Mm. And so for them to try and hold their breath for a long time is really not appropriate. I don't want to spike their threat and push them further into their symptoms. So I would get them sometimes to hold it just for 10 seconds and then to take a one minute break. Sometimes I would get people to do 15 squats holding their breath and then they would take a one second break. Like this is how variable it can be depending on the person. Got it. And you recommend every day and just like make it like a five minute exercise. Like don't, it doesn't have to be like an hour long thing. Just it doesn't even have to be five minutes. When I go for my morning walk, I will just do three rounds of air hunger for as many steps as I can. That's cool. Air hunger. I like that. (laughs) It sounds weird, but it works so well. And I'll just give you one other reason why it works. 
your your brainstem is at the it's the most the oldest part of your brain. It's right at the bottom of your brain, and the when we light up the brainstem, it's really powerful because we feed our brain takes in fuel from the bottom to the top and the back to the front. It's literally like a sponge that you've dipped in water and it has the mechanism to sort of absorb water from the back portion and slowly keep absorbing it until it reaches the front. And so the brainstem, what we see is if people haven't got enough fuel going through their whole brain, that's when they really struggle. So sometimes I'm actually giving them all the right stuff. I'm giving them all these cool drills and I'm really trying to give them my best physio stuff and nothing's working. And then later I'm like, oh, you don't have enough fuel. And the two forms of fuel that the brain takes in is oxygen and glucose. So like, what have you eaten today and how long ago? And how are you breathing? And potentially there's something wrong with your brainstem. And so it's absorbing all of your fuel and it's not getting to the rest of your cortex. And so if you do air hunger, it just helps to get a bit more fuel to the rest of the brain because we're lighting up. Not only are we lighting up the midbrain, which is very near the bottom of your brain, but we're also uh, sending additional fuel with the oxygen saturate, with the oxygen the CO2 levels rather pulling the oxygen into the brain. So just lots of good stuff is happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what has been your experience with exploring yogic style pranayama techniques? And, and then it sounds like, you know, obviously from the physio and or exercise science world, there's, there's a certain way to approach uh, breathing practices. Like you mentioned, have you explored, uh, you know, tra- I don't want to say traditional, uh, but like, old school yoga style breathing practices. Yeah, I have. And I'll have to be honest with your community and say that not recently because I've been down this rabbit hole of neuroscience and working quite hard on that and more on the functional rehab perspective. There are people who do trauma rehabilitation through a lot of the different hyperventilating techniques. Mm. Um, And I don't know much about that, if I'm really honest. It's definitely on my path to get there. There's just been a lot of other information, as you can hear, that's kind of taken the front seat. But what I can say is that one of the things that's really been highlighted to me through my personal journey with researching this content is that with yogic breathing techniques, we just do need to be careful that we don't assume that these breathing techniques are good for everyone. Mm. Because what I would do in my clinical practice is I would test, like I would give you air hunger and then I would check, is your forward fold improving? And if it doesn't, if it actually gets worse, that's a sign. Maybe mm-hmm. air hunger is not the right breathing drill for you. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. We're all different. And I do feel that potentially in the world of exercise, yoga, breathing techniques, they're not testing their work. Mm. They're not testing, does this nervous system want cold exposure? Yeah. Does this nervous system respond well to a hot water bottle? Should we be doing bastrika with this person? They're just going, oh, this is this is this is an ancient form of breathing, so it's definitely good. Let's go. Yeah, good point. Mm, That's no. Yeah. And the other thing is, <laughs> when we are doing hyperventilating techniques, whether that is for trauma release or it is just because you're in a yoga class, we need to put a bigger emphasis on recovery because of the CO two that we are losing, and because of the fact that in modern life we 
tend to release so much of our CO2. We don't have adequate blood gas levels. So, and that's not across the board, guys. I'm sorry if that came across as a blanket statement. It's just obviously I work with a very niche set of population. So um, take what I say with a massive grain of salt. You are extremely resilient. Your body is very adaptable. And I just want you to make sure that whatever you're doing, don't force it because you've been told this should be good for you. If it doesn't feel good, you are so welcome to abandon anything any teacher ever gives you don't feel forced to do anything just because you're told by someone else this is good yeah great point what got you all fired up about all this what what was a turning point in your life where you realized this is what i want to do this is what i'm going to focus on i'm really glad you asked that because i really want to give a big shout out to uh the the people and the teacher who who's basically given me so much knowledge i obviously did a degree in physical therapy and i worked as a physio And it was really frustrating because I just wasn't getting results with people. If I'm honest, I was doing traditional um, rehab, looking at someone who's not, you know, got pain in their knee and would strengthen their quads and strengthen their hamstrings and their glutes and um, their knee pain wouldn't go away. And and that was very frustrating. And it was um, around the beginning of the pandemic that I ended up meeting Dr. Eric Cobb, Mm. who I, I really... He's just not given the credit he deserves. He's mm. taught so many people about the brain. And he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, a genius of a man. And he he created an education system called Z Health Performance. And in addition to my degree, I've just been slowly chipping away at all of his incredible courses. And I feel like at last utilizing the principles that he has shared, I'm at last able to make some real profound changes in the people that have come to see me for various different things as aggressive as brain trauma, all the way through to simple. I had yesterday a lady, bless her, she had a terrible, like a crook in her neck, we'll call it. Like, you know, when you wake up and you have a crook in your neck, well, she's had it for two years. And for two years, this poor lady hasn't been able to really function very well. Terrible migraines off the back of this tension on her one side. And actually, she she's similar to the lady I saw today. I just gave her a few vestibular drills. And at last, she was like, oh, my goodness, I can move. Like, this is life-changing. And wow. she was like, it's the first time in two years that I've been able to move my neck and my shoulder without any pain. Mm. And that we were together for an hour. Amazing. You know, like it's just yeah, wild. That's amazing. So, the, you know, just credit to Dr. Cobb, Dr. Eric Cobb. Please look him up. Please look up Z Health, everyone in the world. I'll check it out. Please take his courses. You know, some of them are free even. Just he's got loads of free YouTube content. Just really, really worth devouring his content and uh, going to the source. I know I share all this great stuff, but really he he's the he's awesome. Very, very smart. Yeah, I will definitely check him out and I appreciate you mentioning Dude. that. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question then since you, since I have you here, (laughs) I, um, (laughs) I, I I had back, uh, pain. I have a degenerative disc in between my L5 S1 with a spondylothesis where my L5 has Mm -hmm. slipped forward, but I've been dealing with it for a really long time. But then I finally pushed Mm -hmm. things a little way too far, which caused me to start Mm -hmm. getting MRIs and then going, Oh, well maybe that's why I have some back pain. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finding that extension does not feel good at all. Uh, flexion feels great. What have you come across in relation to helping people rehab either spondylolisthesis and/or degenerative disc down in the lumbar? 
I'm so happy you asked this question. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, your personal story. Oh and man, I can't wait honestly, to hear it. I've learned honestly, so I'm much. So, I'm so jazzed that you asked this. So, um, so two, two big things I want to share with you, and then we can maybe talk about some strategies for your unique body. But I'm hoping everyone listens, just Thank hears you. this next message. Like they did this incredible study where they took a huge sample size of 3,600 people. Wow. is massive, right? Yeah. And they analyzed people from the age of 20 to the age of 80. Like they did every uh, decade, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40, all the way through to 80s. And they ensured, ensured that every single person in their sample size had no pain. That was their one criteria. Wow. And then what they did is they analyzed their backs. They started scanning their backs with MRIs to check what's going on in these people's spines. Do they have nothing going on? Do they have something going on? And what was so awesome is they found out that every single age bracket had something going on. Mm. It just increases, it just slowly increased as people got older. But bear in mind, none of these people had pain. They found spondylolisthesis. They found degenerative disc disease, facet joint syndrome, um, uh, degenerative changes were across the board from the 20s, but nobody had pain. And the conclusion that they used when, when pain researchers started, they did some really cool studies to look at pain, but that was one of the big studies that really got researchers thinking that degenerative changes in your spine are very normal but it doesn't mean you will end up in pain. Mm. Oh gosh, that's so nice to hear. It's so good. Do, doesn't that sound like so, that, that backs, I don't want to interrupt you, but doesn't that back no, up Dr. Dr. Sarno's work with healing your backs? He, he kind of- I don't know. Him. Okay, cool. Sorry. All right. I'll let no, you, no, okay. I, want, I want to hear more. I don't want to interrupt you. Sorry, I just <laughs> dropped my AirPod. That's why I did a woo. <laughs> um, so, so I want you guys to think of like, this is where the pain research is so fascinating. Because when we when these researchers started looking at all these amazing um, different experiments, they started realizing that pain is not it's not got anything to do with your body necessarily. Pain is exclusively an output the brain chooses based off of how safe it feels. So potentially you've got something wrong in your back as you do, and potentially you'll feel pain because of that, but very often it's in combination with a lot of other factors. And I want you guys to remember this one important thing. There are no pain receptors in your body, but what we do have is something called nociceptors. And nociceptors sense when you are under threat. Now I want you to imagine a bucket. You wake up with the alarm, wow, 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 crying out at you and it shocks you awake. Mm. Your threat fills up a little bit. First thing you do in the morning is you put the TV on. Guess what? The news is on and there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world and it could affect your world. Threat fills up a little bit. You then get stuck in traffic. Your threat fills up a little bit. You've been sat in a chair all day. Disuse atrophy. Your threat fills up a little more. You then go to a yoga teacher's class and she's constantly saying, Make sure your knee is 90 degrees to protect your knee. Don't do X, Y, Z because you need to protect your back. Squeeze your core tight so that you keep your back safe. So she's instilling this message that you are vulnerable. Mm. Your threat fills up. 
And eventually something happens. Let's say you have a fight with your best, your best friend or your significant other, your partner, and your threat overflows and your brain is like, I can't keep you safe. My job is to keep you safe and I cannot. So I'm going to give you some pain because when you're in pain, it's going to slow you down. It's going to put you in bed. Mm. Now that's not to say that pain is not real. And it's not to say that you can mind over matter pain. If you've got serious things going on in your body, like what you've got is serious, but also we'll need to evaluate your eyes, your middle ear, your brain. How well are you processing the information coming into your brain? Or did you suffer from a a car accident and your brain can't process the incoming information very well? Mm. That's very threatening. So things like dizziness, nausea, pain, stiffness, weakness. These are all signs that the brain is trying to keep you safe. I'll give another example. Imagine you're about to do a backflip, but you've never done a backflip before ever. So you stand, you bend your knees and you're like, okay, here I go. What do you think the jump into the back bend is going to look like? (laughs) Not very enthusiastic. Yeah. It's going to be like, (laughs) woo! it's not going to be much of anything because your brain is going to make you weaker and smaller and everything's going to tighten up because it knows that you've never done a backflip before. Mm. And the brain's always trying to predict the future. And it's like, I mean, if my past experience is anything to go on, this this backflip's not going to go very well. (laughs) And we are in danger of hitting our most valuable asset, which is our head. And so you're not going to be able to go very far. In fact, you might even develop your pain. Your pain in your back might get worse. Ooh, suddenly, oh, that feels worse for some reason. It's just because your brain is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You need to go back in your box, big man. Like, (laughs) you're not ready for this backflip, dude. And so the brain is always communicating with us. But unfortunately, it just uses really obscure methods of communication, which don't give us a clear indication of what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's fascinating. Mm, wow. It's a good one. Wow. I mean, so, well, first of all, I mean, it definitely made me think too in relation to what I'm telling myself, like, okay, back bending hurts, right? So mm. now it's like, don't do it, don't do it. So where do I, or maybe if I don't just put it about me, but just like say all of us in general, when we have... Um, you know, we, we, if we feel like we figured something out, like, okay, this is what I need to stop doing. Then one of, one of the ideas, when I mentioned that author, Dr. Sarno, he has a very similar theory to what you said, uh, in relation to what he's observed in his practice. Uh, and one of his ideas is that you, you should get right back to doing what you're used to doing because that reservation, hesitation of like, oh boy, if I do that, that's going to be worse. If I keep doing this, it's going to be worse. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of pointing to what you're saying exactly the same. Like, you know, we want to override that, um, uh, hesitation, you know, maybe the hesitation is, is what's causing the discomfort. So how do we find that fine line, you know, of knowing like, if I know that hurts me, like almost like if I hit my head on the wall and I know that hurts me. Obviously, I don't want to keep doing that. Don't right? want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but like, on, I think it's a, a yeah. fine balance, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. a fine balance. Yeah. So 
he's right. We don't want to get into something. What he's describing is the fear avoidance pattern. This yeah. is a really old theory. I mean, I went to university. I graduated in 2009, and we were learning about fear avoidance strategies then, which is a vicious cycle. You hurt, so you stop moving. And because you stop moving, you hurt more. Because you're hurting more, you stop moving even more. And then you get like into this vicious cycle. So he's right. You, you want to train the body to move because movement is – like motion is lotion, as they said, that cheesy little statement, which actually is so true. You do want to teach your body to tolerate some backbends. Maybe for you going into some wild ass, deep dancer's pose is not going to be appropriate, <laughs> but we do want to at least get you doing glute yeah. bridges because yeah. that's a functional yeah. movement where we can get your glutes fired up. And that's like a nice extension to get your posterior chain working. Yes. So we do want to Gently start to get your body used to some Great answer. extension. Great answer. However, I don't want you to ever put limits on yourself because maybe we could get you back to that dancers. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. I don't want yeah. to ever say, "Oh, you'll you'll never walk I again." I don't want to say those I words agree. to anyone. Yeah. Like, what if yeah. what if they could? You know? Yeah. And then I yeah. put that thought in their mind. Great point. However, I would want to evaluate your whole system. And when I say that I, I work extraordinarily holistically, I will analyze, first of all, I take a very robust history and I'll look at what's happened in your past. Like the lady today, like with your vestibular system, they're like little canals and there's fluid in there. And if someone is has kind of um, hormonal issues, it affects how fluid the motion runs in your canals. And a lot of her history was pointing towards hormonal things. So I was like, definitely her, her vestibular system is not working. I, I can see that looking at her history, even though she's a dancer, like imagine. So I would want to evaluate your eyes, your ears, your brain. How does it function? What, how, what's your sleep like? How, what's mm. your diet like? But the biggest thing I'd want to evaluate is how are you talking to yourself when you're going into movement? What are you saying to yourself when your back is sore? And I would really try and tease out the negative loops of, oh, my bloody back again. Yeah. Or, yeah. oh, yeah. stupid back. Like, honestly, you know, like that kind of, which really your back is just doing what it's supposed to do and letting you know that it's not safe. Yeah. So that's actually a good thing, you know. So it's like developing a different relationship with pain would be a, a big step in the rehab process. Nice. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for all this information. What is your thoughts? What are what are your thoughts on walking, uh, in terms oh, yeah, of in terms of importance of walking? Just for in in general, do do you recommend yeah. to your clients that are saying it's painful for me to walk? Oh, you know, like for say your kind it, of condition, or, or even neck pain or shoulder. Like sometimes when people are on their feet for a long period of time, they're like, "Oh my god, it's so painful." Mm. Have you do you, do you see wa just walking as a form of therapy? That's a really good question, Todd. You know, and I I use what we call gait analysis mm. to check people's walking, and I can tell a lot about what's going on in their brain looking at the way they walk, because there's certain patterns that come up again and again. And then when you tweak those parts of the brain, we see the patterns go away. Yeah. It's really wild. Yeah. So walking is very, very powerful. It's a very healthy thing to do. We've evolved to take many, many steps every day, and we don't do enough. I would say that movement is so, so crucial. So if you are someone who's going to walk, great. But I'll give the example of my dad. You know, he's struggled with terrible arthritis since the age of 20. Walking is so painful for him. 
and he just really loves to ride a bike. He just loves getting on his bike. So I would always encourage him, like, get on yeah. your bike when you take the dog for a walk. Yeah. Because I don't want him to be in pain. I want him yeah. to have as much yeah. pain-free time as possible. Yeah. Um, and so it depends. Yeah. It depends on Good the person. Point. Good point. This is a totally off-topic question. So for those listening, please bear with me, but I just have to ask Celeste's question. Um, what's, what size kite did you fly last time oh, you, you went kite seven. surfing? <laughs> a seven meter? A seven. A seven. Yeah, and so, I'm just getting my jumps at the moment. So I'm just so, are I'm you, just, I can't tell you the joy. It's just the best thing in the world. <laughs> are you strapped in or are you riding a surfboard? I'm, I'm strapped in at the moment. I'm strapped in, um, but it's definitely a goal of mine to get a surfboard. And obviously it's gotta be so cold over there. What's so like, are you kiting in the winter or only in the summer? Yeah. And what type, I, what, I what size, what suit are you? Do you? you so you're yeah. doing the winter in England as well? Oh, hundred percent. And it was so funny. Are, I just, I mean, I'm wearing a big thick wetsuit and I just messaged my brother like late last night going, we've got to go to the surf shop because <laughs> the, the, the wetsuit that I've got is either not warm enough, I get too cold, yeah. or the one that I've got that's thick enough, it drinks water like it's not a very good one. And mm -hmm. I end up looking like the Michelin man. Do you guys have that? <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have the Michelin man in America? Well, we do, but you know, more. Like yeah, chubby yeah. guy. Well, that's yeah. how I look when I get out the water. Because <laughs> the ankles are so tight. The water's not leaving. Heavy. Yeah. But the water's yeah. coming it exactly so i'm yes. powering up my kite yeah, yeah. <laughs> and eventually it's not strong enough to get me up and i have to leave the water <laughs> have you had that experience yet where you try to launch an air and you swing the kite really high back up and you get up in the air and then you don't coordinate the flow of the kite back forward again you get completely body slammed yeah i love it <laughs> all right i'm telling you right you got to get so whipped around it yeah uh, that's cool so, it's the best. Well, thank you for indulging me there. So when you uh, offer yoga teacher training, what are questions mm -hmm. that you find you get asked the most in relation to, say, anatomy and yoga? So you're saying if someone wants to join my teacher training, mm -hmm. what question would they ask? Well, no, like when you when you conduct teacher training. Oh, I see. What, what are some of like the, the big questions that you get that you just feel like you get it again mm -hmm. and again? Like you keep addressing you know, I have to say I drop a lot of bombshells. And so people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say we should not be engaging our core? <laughs> uh, that's the first thing that popped into mind. Cool. So it's less a question and more like a hang on, hang on. Did I understand you correctly? Can you explain one, that? Guys. Can you explain that? Yeah. Oh, man. Why would I not want to engage my core or why? what am I getting wrong about this concept of core it's a it's just it's a pandemic of people over engaging <laughs> just like let's use the bicep as an example o over engaging let's just let's just during this chat together this next yeah. few minutes just okay. keep your bicep tense with me we'll do it yeah. together right. just keep it up there yeah. so every like really tense yeah come on yeah. everyone at home join join us <laughs> with, the, with the funny arm and really squeeze your fist and your bicep like really go for it yeah. and just how long can you think you can sustain this intense contraction uh, before it cramps up uh i don't know 60 seconds maybe maybe okay uh, and how long are we expecting the core and pelvic floor to stay contracted 
<laughs> the core, the, the pelvic floor to contract. And yeah, Mula like, and Uddiyana Bandha in a yeah. yoga class. Like, how long do we want that contraction? We're told if we're doing it for 90 minutes, for 90 minutes, like the whole time. Yeah. 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 Go on. Right? Now squeeze your arm a little more for that 90 <laughs> seconds. And then relax. And try yeah. and now do dexterity with that hand. Yeah. Imagine you're going to pick up a crystal glass. Mm. We yeah. expect so much from these muscles. They haven't evolved to grip into a single rigid hold. They've evolved to adapt to the pressure system. Put your hands on your ribs and feel your ribs are moving because air is filling up your ribs, your lungs rather. And this is making your diaphragm push down. Now move your hands to where your belly is. What's happening to the organs? Mm. They should be moving. And so the core should be loading eccentrically. That means the muscle fibers are lengthening as you inhale and concentrically as you breathe out. And when a muscle moves through range, it's a healthy, strong muscle. You're engaging it into a single rigid hold. That muscle is not strong. You take anybody who keeps their muscle on one single level contracted. It's not a strong muscle. It's very weak. It's overactive, but weak. Mm. Cannot do a good bicep curl if you hold your bicep at a single rigid hold for 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to get your best rep. And so it's the same with the core. We need to load along with respiration. When you look at ultrasounds mm. of the pelvic floor and the core, you can actually see the muscle fibers doing this, which is eccentric, concentric, eccentric, concentric. Mm. As the diaphragm moves, they move together. Imagine the cogs of a machine. Imagine four cogs and how when they turn, the other one turns. Now jam one of them straight. What's going to happen to the others? Mm. They're not going to yeah. move. Yeah, yeah. Good so point. your diaphragm is the lead, leads the charge, right? The diaphragm is moving. It wants to keep you alive. It's moving up and down. But now your core is rigid. What's going to happen to the diaphragm? It's not going to be able not to move, move as well. Yeah. It's going to be rigid too. And your diaphragm... Everyone thinks the core is your trunk stabilizer. It is, but my God, the diaphragm. The diaphragm connects low as L3, and it is your biggest core stabilizer, and it is a powerful muscle, and it needs to move to function well. When we get people to grip at 30%, mm. we see a reduction in lumbar stability. Mm. That makes me you think know? then you're we're in downward facing dog. Don't try to really squeeze core. Just breathe in deeply. Any pose, just in any let it in move. any situation. Just so let don't don't grip. Don't grip it. <laughs> no. All right. No. So that blow that blows everywhere. some minds for sure, right? Yeah, it's everywhere. Every single class I take, navel <laughs> to spine, engage your core, mm. squeeze it tight, your back mm. is vulnerable. And mm. I'm like you're not taking into account the pressure system. When your core moves, it's not vulnerable. That's a strong position. You've got a lot packed in. You've got air, diaphragm is contracted as it's moving down. Yes, pelvic floor and transverse abdominis are loading eccentrically, but they are not weak there. It's like taking a, your bicep curl example again and lowering your weight down to the ground. It's not weak. It's just lowering down. Yeah. Yes, it looks really strong when you curl it up against gravity, but that doesn't mean that it's weak. Interesting. 
So then you're implementing during your own practice, uh, just relax. And then every now and again, when it seems appropriate, if I have to squeeze, go ahead and squeeze it. But then I'm aware of that. Relax again and just keep breathing. Nice. If you can squeeze it, if it's appropriate. So for example, a lot of people who've had core and pelvic floor trauma, maybe they've delivered or maybe they've had an operation they maybe lose connection, that neural connection to those muscles. So sensory feedback would be really important, like placing your hands on all of those different muscles and feeling the relationship of what a contraction versus a relaxation would feel like. Mm, that's mm, awesome. Mm. Um, if they are doing a movement that's very demanding, you know, tuning into those muscles, feeling it contract and release along with the breath, there should be no rigid holds. And then in addition to that, recognizing that that is the starting point, but not the finish line. The finish line is that you reflexively let the brain do its thing. Mm. It should You shouldn't be overriding those unconscious processes with your conscious demands. And this is especially a good example. Again, the bicep, let's imagine I'm about to drink a cup of water. Who thinks about their bicep when they're drinking water? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> and who whacks themselves so hard that they have blood coming out of their face? No, or who fine coordination. struggles <laughs> to lift the cup up because they're not engaging into their bicep enough. It's a very small yeah. percentage of the population with those two issues. Yeah. Most people just drink the water without thinking. They're busy typing, talking on the phone, listening to the radio all at once, and they're drinking their water. Yeah. Hot yeah. drinks. Yeah. Just the right amount of sensitivity coming to their lips. <laughs> just the right amount of tilt. And we're not thinking about it. Yes. Why do we have to think about the core so hard? Just trust your body, please. Your body is so smart. Stop messing it up with thinking about everything so intensely. Your body's got this. Amazing. Just move and relax. Chill out. Amazing. (laughs) You've been trained in the physio world as well as the yoga world. What are your thoughts on loaded flexion? You know, for example, like a pose, standing leg raises or titasta, parangustasana, you grab your foot, you put yeah. it out and that's like a heavy item and your inflection. Yeah, that's pretty good. Do, what do you that's think? That's pretty good. You like it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah cool. I love it. Do you feel like 100%. In, the, in the physio world, is there this idea that you should never do loaded flexion or? No, I mean, maybe, but I hope not. Your body is resilient <laughs> and strong. You can do... You so can, much as long as it's as long as I, I you progressively yeah. built yeah. up to it, yeah. go for it. Your body, yeah. oh my god, guys, just listen to me. Your body is so resilient. <laughs> it can do so much. Uh, the big problem is we've been told we're fragile. Yeah, we are not fragile. I feel the underlying theme of your message. I like it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if you want to get really good at anything, progressively build up to it. Yeah. But don't think that it's wrong or bad. Please. Yeah. yeah. Please don't ever yeah. let those thoughts enter your brain because they've done all these, in again, really cool studies where they analyzed, um, you know, different verbal cues. And it's actually a bigger issue that we're telling people to, to uh, do something to protect our joints. That's a bigger issue than actually doing the movements. Mm-hmm. Because your brain works on a predictive mechanism. It's trying to predict the future. Am I safe? Am I safe if I do this? Am I safe if I do that? Now you're being told, do this to protect your knee. Oh, my knee needs protection. Oh, okay. Okay, I've got to be careful with my knees. I've got to be careful how I move. Now we're in the fear cycle. Remember that mm. that vicious cycle I mm. spoke about? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not going to move as much with my knee because my knee is vulnerable. I need to protect my knees. The yoga teacher told me, my knees, be careful with your knees. Yes. 
Imagine if every yoga teacher was like, your knees are so strong and so resilient. Just today, we're going to go knee over ankle. Tomorrow, we're going to go knee beyond ankle. The next day, knee behind ankle. You're going to get good of all of them. If it doesn't feel right, ease back to neutral. And then we're going to slowly get you ready to go to all the ranges possible because your body can do it. We just have to get you there slowly. Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Yes, Celeste. That's awesome. I'm so excited I got a chance to meet you. Thank you so much. I I mean, I can't believe it's already almost an hour and I, I still have so many questions, but let's I think that's probably so much information for anyone listening to digest. Like usually I find an hour is like just good enough to, you know, then take a couple deep breaths and chill out after. Is there <laughs> is there anything uh what, what what did we miss? What what could I ask you? What um or any final thoughts that um you really want to hit home with here to conclude? Uh, I think the biggest one is really listen to how you talk to yourself. I know you get told this low, everyone's heard it before, but I mean, really listen. Like what is exactly are you saying to yourself moment to moment? And if the thoughts are very unconscious and just running away from you, could you just take a moment to pause and tune into the supercomputer slash utter most precious gift you've been given, which is your body and just send some good energy down into it. Say, thank you. I don't even know if half the things that you do even are in existence in medical literature. That's how complex you are. And you're just doing it for me. Like you're just doing it. And I don't always drink enough water or get enough sleep. I work really hard or I'm, I put myself second. And, and yet here you are waking up for me each and every day. Just thank you. Thank you for that. Just, just once a day, if you could just sneak in that little narrative, or if there is a movement that you're struggling with, like your back bends, like when you're slowly grading your body up towards it, just be like, I trust you so much. Mm. You've gotten me this far. I can ride the water with a kite for God's sake. <laughs> like that's so impressive. And, and it's because of your incredible abilities, body, like, thanks. Like as if you're talking to a kid, you know, you would yeah, always want to say yeah. nice things yeah. to your kids and you would want to build them up, please, please give yourself that same kindness. Like you're so important. Oh, beautiful message. That's amazing, Celeste. Well, what a treat. I'm so thankful. And, and I, I appreciate you accepting the invitation and being so kind. And um, I, I can't wait to just keep digesting more of your information that you're putting out. It's just so great. So thank you, Celeste. It's a huge pleasure. And I'd like to also thank you for inviting me to all your listeners and especially for all your well-prepared questions. Thank you so much. I know how much time and effort a podcast like this takes. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you're really serving so many people doing this. And, you know, my message, my, what I always say is even if you just reach one person, you've made a difference somehow. And I, I know for a fact that you're reaching that one person and making a difference to them. <laughs> so thank you to you too. Thanks, Celeste. I'll see you soon. <laughs> Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. 
And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review and join us next time.